Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. We're going to get a bit of a running start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good and divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Before we get into the particulars of this week of creation, we should take just a moment to point out a few patterns that exist that we'll see emerge through all six days before we get the numbering of each day, following the tagline, evening and morning were the first day, evening and morning were the second, third, fourth, and so on. Every one of these days begins with God speaking forth a command, then a reporting of what happens, and then God's evaluation that it was good. Every day has this general pattern. And in order to streamline our examination of the text, I just want to, right from the beginning, go ahead and make three observations necessary to understanding the entirety of the creation narrative as it's presented in Genesis chapter 1. First, there is a question that must be addressed. Should we accept the plain reading of our text that God created in six literal days? To answer this question, I would say yes, mainly because the text itself doesn't tell us it should be read any other way. While it's true, the word that we have in the Hebrew for day or yom can be used in certain references and instances to describe an unspecified age of time such as the day of the Lord. We have another passage where we're told that a day is as of a thousand years and a thousand years as of a day, that God has this different context. While that is true, please note that anytime this word yom is placed with a numerical value, such as first day, it only in all of scripture refers to a literal 24-hour period. So yes, yom can be used in certain contexts to describe an eon of time, but any time it's coupled with a numerical value, it always refers to a literal 24-hour period. Furthermore, you should note that every day in Genesis 1 is defined with this phrase, evening and morning. In the Hebrew language, this phrase, evening and morning, it's, it's emphatic. Like, like there's, there's really no room to reinterpret evening and morning in any other way than emphatically evening and morning were the first day or the second day or the third day. This emphasis was so strong that the Hebrews, Hebrew scholars in the Hebrew culture, the Hebrew nation, decided because of the emphatic nature of 
this phrase in Genesis 1 that they structured their day differently than we do ours. Their day, the Hebrew day, began at sunset. Evening and morning were the first day, as opposed to sunrise. It should also be mentioned that Moses, the compiler, the author of Genesis, he accepted a literal reading of Genesis 1. In Exodus chapter 20, in the midst of the law, as he's setting up the context for the Sabbath day, Moses writes, quote, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And here's why. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and then the seventh day he rested. This is important. For there are those who claim that Genesis 1 leaves room for God to use evolutionary processes in the creation of all things. Uh, some would call this theistic evolution, God initiating and controlling evolution. And yet, while I don't want to argue the particulars of that per se, the problem with this viewpoint is the fact the text simply doesn't substantiate this position. It's why we're getting into the minutiae here, because it's all about the text. Consider that as a response to God's commands for things to come into existence, we're told over and over and over again in Genesis 1 that, quote, it was so. God would speak and it was so not it became so. The word doesn't leave this room for the evolving of something to become, but rather in the moment God spoke, the result was that it was so. Additionally, if the six days do represent eons of evolutionary process, eons initiated, controlled, manufactured by God, that's true. Well, from my position you have now two larger problems that, that emerge. First, Genesis 1 claims that life began on land and not the sea, which is a direct contradiction to the evolutionary model. Secondly, the development of vegetated life is listed before the very systems vegetated life needed to survive. Vegetated life comes before the creation of the sun. Last time I checked, you needed sunlight, right? Additionally, you needed animals for pollination. And yet the systems vegetation needed to survive come later, which means there's no way it could survive if we're talking about eons of time or exist in some evolutionary model beyond this. As it pertains to living things, following God's commands to reproduce, you'll find the repeated phrase for this to occur, quote, according to its kind. And this word kind can literally be translated its species. While it's true that we see microevolution at work in the natural world, through adaptations within various species. It's also an indisputable reality 
that we have no evidence whatsoever of macroevolution ever successfully transitioning one species to another. You can see adaptations and evolution within species, but jumping from one species to another, we simply haven't ever seen the existence of that or evidence for it. And why? Well, according to the Bible, the answer is that animal species are bound by their kind or their stored information. Through inherited traits passed on over time, while these things do allow a specific species to adapt for the purposes of survival, DNA and genetics determine that there are certain fundamental characteristics of a species that will never change. And, and note, anytime the core genetic fundamentals of a species are not passed along to the offspring, the result is always a negative mutation and loss of life. Let me give you an example. Fetal genetic modification. Tinkering with embryos and human life. I mean, it is an incredible development of modern science. The things we can do today and the things that we can do in the, just the coming years are astounding. And as crazy as it might seem, Aside from being able to determine gender or eye color, it's not, so, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that we'll reach a point in our scientific developments that we'll be able to literally create Superman, supermen, superwomen. Aside from eye color and, 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 and basic kind of cosmetic changes, that we'll be able genetically to tinker with height and with strength, with even IQ and intelligence, health. We'll be able to make Superman with one exception. You see, you can't modify human DNA to do something contrary to its fundamentals. You can make men bigger and stronger and smarter and faster do you know the one thing you can't do through tinkering of genetics? You can't make men fly. Why? We don't have the fundamentals within our genetic code that make flying possible. Second observation. I love the fact that following God's evaluation of all that he'd done, every day ends with this phrase. God saw it. He saw that, quote, it was good. I love it. Like, understand what this phrase doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that in every day of creation, God, God did what we do. I don't know if you can relate. You get out, you work, you mow the yard, you edge, you weed eat, you blow it off, you pull out some weeds, you trim the bushes. I mean, you spend all day working hard, right, in the yard. And then inevitably, you're done. And if you're like me, you'll sit back with an ice cold lemonade and you'll look out over what you did. And you'll just sit and enjoy it, right? Wow, it was good. You'll admire your handiwork. You worked hard, you made something. And then in, a, in a, almost a, a sense of pride, 
you take joy in it. But understand, that's not what this phrase means. This is not what God is doing each day at the end of creation. He's not stepping back and taking pride in his work. Instead, this phrase, it was good, was God's way of evaluating his creation in the context of how man would enjoy his creation. It, it, you should almost read it like this, that God created the sun, the moon, the stars, recreated plants, recreated sea life, and he stood back and he said, man, they'll love that. I mean, wow. When they can see those stars, like my goodness, I can't wait till they discover that or they see that. Man will have so much joy. And what's crazy about that is that there were things created in Genesis chapter one, whether it be stars or constellations, plants, marine life, animals, you name it, that what's happening in, in the last 10 years, for the first time ever, we were able to see them and enjoy them and admire them. I love that. That in Genesis one, God created things knowing it would take so many years where we would finally be able to send a video crew to capture it so that we could all step back and say, wow, that is good. I love that about God. Like understand something about creation. This is, this is what's, what's helpful. Creation is man-centric. Like if you keep that point in mind, as we travel through the creation narrative, that God was doing everything with the specific intention of humanity, benefiting humanity, well, then it's much easier to accept a literal six-day event. Finally, one of the fundamental problems with origin science is that no human being was actually present to witness and record the origin of anything, with one exception. What we do have contained in Genesis 1 is in actuality God's firsthand eyewitness account of his creation process. No human was there to see it, to witness it, to record it, but God was there. It's interesting, even in the text that we read, that what happened, God saw, God witnessed. And this phrase is repeated over and over and over again in Genesis 1. Once again, the options you have are rather simple. Either you accept the revelation of the God who was present for and initiated the origins of all things, for in the beginning, God, or you rely on man's best guess. But understand, either position will require a measure of faith. The Bible never skirts the reality that it takes faith concerning creation that God created. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, we're told that faith is the substance, there's substance of things hoped for, and evidence, there's evidence for faith to be reasonable, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. But then the author places faith in context to what? He says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed, how? By the word of God. And yet, the irony 
is that while the scientific community ridicules and marginalizes those who believe in an intelligent designer, as it pertains to origins specifically, evolutionary sciences also require a measure of faith from the individual. And, and there's really two easy reasons for this. First, since no one is sure of the original conditions that spawn life, the theories we possess cannot be tested with the scientific method. They required belief and a measure of faith. Secondly, the probability of complex life spontaneously evolving from a single cell is so incredibly unlikely that even evolutionary scientists don't believe it can or ever could happen again. That's a truth. To illustrate the immense amount of faith that those who've substituted the revelation of God for the intelligence of man. At C316.tv, I've included a link to the most recent Radio Lab podcast titled Cellmates. It's really interesting. Uh, this podcast presents, quote, the story of one cosmic oops moment that changed the game of life forever. And the reason I've included it is not that I believe any of what's presented in this particular podcast, but it's just to illustrate the reality of how much faith even the people who believe these things exert with theories they can't prove to their own admission. The truth is that even the brightest minds overlook when discussing origins the fact that matter plus energy plus time for probability still fails to produce life. What life needs to exist, it's true, it needs matter and it needs energy, but what it needs, aside from time, what's essential is information, DNA. Interestingly enough, information demands intelligence. How fitting the Bible says that God in creation spoke. He spoke what? Information, intelligence, and all things were created. Well, it's about as scientific as I'm going to get this morning, but let's dive into day one. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. It's not an accident that light was the very first thing that God created. As one of the elementary elements of the universe, light, which, which we know to be a photon, is the smallest amount of energy that can be transported through space. Furthermore, light is unique. While we know it's an element, what makes it fascinating is that it's an element that behaves itself like a wave. And therefore, it possesses an electromagnetic field that produces a very complex spectrum. You've heard of frequencies like gamma rays, X-rays, ultraviolet, infrared, radar, FM, TV, AM, light. Light is essential for everything and anything. Like light not only interacts with matter, right? Light is ordered by matter and then gathers information about the matter around it. But unexplainably, regardless of frequency, what makes light so radical 
is that it travels at the constant speed of C. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's basically 299,792,458 meters per second. For those of you who just didn't know that off the top of your head. And what's interesting is that that speed, that incredible, random, weird, bizarre speed that light is, happens to be the fastest thing that anything can travel in space. That constant rate of C. How that, that happened, how that exists, how that reality is the truth, no one has a clue. I've actually included a video at c316.tv kind of talking about light, giving you the basic building blocks of it. And when they get to that particular question, the guy's like, eh, no idea. Because no one knows. Like, understand, without light, nothing in the physical universe could be knowable or aged. The constant speed of light is how scientists end up placing such an, an old age to our universe. We'll get to that in a minute. We're then told that God divided the light from the darkness. I have no idea what that means. Like how you divide light from the darkness, how the mechanics of that. If you got a good theory, I'd love to hear it. I have no clue. But what is interesting is that this is the first moment that we get a separation. You'll find that God is always in Genesis separating, dividing, instituting distinction amongst creation. Over and over and over again, he's dividing and he's separating. But the first mention of this, the first division, is placed in the context of light and darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? We live in a world that is trying to eliminate division and separation. Relativism eliminates there being truth so that nothing is false. But the reality then is nothing has meaning. The Bible accepts the premise that there is a truth and it separates itself from the falsehood. That there is a right and that there is a wrong. That there is a righteousness and there is a wickedness. There is walking in the light and there is walking in the darkness. And God has set it up where there is a division between the two, always. Then God said, verse 6, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day, day two. While the waters already existed, directly following the beginning. We find the existence of the waters, right, in verse two. It is at this point in time that God now provides order from seeming chaos by forming, quote, a firmament in the midst of the waters with the intention of dividing waters from the waters. 
this word firmament means expanse or to literally spread out thin. Not only does God in this instance create an atmosphere, expanse, that he stretches out an atmosphere around one aspect of the waters, but it's very likely this is evidence that our atmosphere was then capped above it with some type of thick canopy of water vapor, which would then form a perfect greenhouse effect on the earth. God stretched out the firmament to divide waters, which means that there was probably water in the outer expanse of the atmosphere. Well, God said, verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So now here we are in day three. After separating the waters, God now commands the waters under the heavens referring to one aspect of this initial separation, to now gather into one place. This, this phrase, one place, it can, it can literally mean one basin, before then commanding the dry land to appear. It's, it's likely that that's an indication that the materials of land already existed. They just existed under the waters. Now, now note, this is a side observation. Earth was separated from the waters. Do you know, it wasn't separated from itself, which seems to indicate that at least initially, there would have been only one supercontinent, dry land and water. The fancy term for this one supercontinent is Pangaea. Additionally, there would have been no such thing as islands, because once God is not separating earth from earth, just earth from the waters. And as creation pertains in animals, one chunk of land versus separated land would make sense. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass. The herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the fruit tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that, that it was good. So evening and morning were the third day. I, I like this opening phrase. God said, let the earth bring forth. God, he separates earth and see the waters. And now he furnishes the land with this incredible, awesome ability to yield from itself, to produce vegetated life. Let the earth bring forth that within the earth was everything vegetated life would need to exist. Then, and in another amazing stroke of genius, after creating grass and herbs and, and trees, God enabled vegetation the ability to recreate itself. How? 
through seed. So he gives the earth the ability to produce vegetation. Then he gives the vegetation the ability to recreate itself. He's setting an order here. And on a side note, for seed to exist, these original plants had to have been created fully matured. It's the only way there would have been seed. Once again, it's interesting that the very first mention of this phrase, according to its kind, is presented in context to what? The development of seed essential for continued life. Understand, it is by its very natural order, the way God created it, that you can only reap of the very seed you've sown. In Galatians 6, Paul writes, whatever a man sows, what he's sown, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall, command, reap whatever it is we've sown, if we do not lose heart. And as we noted in our study through Galatians, that the principle that exists here is that if you want to see spiritual results, fruit, life produced in your heart and through your life, the only way that's attained is to sow seed that yields that produce. So if you want to see spiritual things produced, is that then through reaping things of the, of the flesh, sowing of the flesh, or of the spirit. If I want to see spiritual results, I need to sow spiritual seed, which is this whole battle against the law. For the law provides a lie, a way in which my flesh can do something with the hopes of it yielding a spiritual result. And yet right here in Genesis, we find why that's impossible, because God won't allow it. Seed always produce according to its kind. If you want to see godly attributes being demonstrated through your life, the, the remedy is to spend time with God. If you want to see your life grow to be more in the image and the likeness of Jesus, that it's by spending time with Jesus that that takes place. So often we look at our lives and we're like, why is there not spiritual growth? Why is there all this junk? And if we would take a step back, the answer is that we've been sowing according to its kind. We haven't been sowing to the spirit. We've been sowing to the flesh. Is it then a surprise that the flesh is producing more flesh versus the spirit? Then God said, verse 14, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. What a disappointment that that's all we're told sun, the moon, and he made the stars. <laughs> That's it. That's all we're given. God set them 
in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day, day four. God says, let there be lights. This is a totally different word from light. This word in the Hebrew, you might translate as light bearers. God's already created light. Light already exists. Now he's creating objects that will yield light, bear light. On the fourth day, God created the sun, moon, and stars. Everything else. And he did it, we're told, for three reasons. Note, one, divide the day from the night. So sun, moon, and stars had these three purposes. Divide the day from the night. Two, he created these things for signs and seasons, days and years. So he created fixed objects in our sky so that humans would be able to use them for navigation, to tell time, etc. Stroke of genius by God, right? Thirdly, they were created to give light on the earth. Now, while it's easy to understand the immediate implications of these things as they pertain to the sun and the moon, it's important we point out the stars were created for these three very same purposes. That means that for a star to shine light on the earth, the shaft of light between the earth and the star had to have already existed the moment it was created. Like as with plants, it stands to reason that stars, some of them, maybe not all of them, but a good portion of them were already created with the appearance of age to provide light to the earth, which means using stars, light from stars, with that constant rate of C to date the universe is a fundamentally flawed proposition because it's making the assumption that the star upon its creation didn't already have the beam of light where it could be seen by human beings. It's also interesting that God describes here the moon as the lesser light as opposed to the sun, which he defines as the greater light. And obviously the reason that this distinction is made is that while the sun generates light for the earth, right? The moon, what is the, does the moon generate light? No, it doesn't. All the moon does is it's a reflector of the sun. That, that's how we get moonlight. To this point, I can't take credit for this, but 19th century English preacher C.H. McIntosh he made this observation. I love it. Quote, Now as the sun is a beautiful and appropriate symbol of Christ, so the moon strikingly reminds us of the church. The fountain of her light is hidden from view. The world seeth him not, but she sees him, and she is responsible to reflect his beams upon a benighted world. The world has no other way in which to learn anything of Christ, but of the church. What a responsible place. How earnestly 
should she watch against everything that would hinder the reflection of the heavenly light of Christ in all of her ways. But, and I love this, how is she, the moon, to reflect the light? By allowing, by allowing it to shine upon her and its undimmed brightness. You know, this idea of, of Jesus, the sun, the light of the world, and the church being the reflector of that light. We don't generate anything in and of ourselves. We're to be a witness of Jesus. This little light of mine is not my little light. It's Jesus' light in me, reflecting. I'm to be a witness. But you know, that whole picture, us being the moon, the church, reflecting the light, it, you know, it, there's a reality that the only thing that prohibits the moon from fulfilling its task of reflecting the light of the sun is when the world gets in the way. For you and I, for the church, for Calvary 316, to shine the light of Jesus in its undimmed glory, man, we gotta get away from the world. Not that we're not to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. That the world will rob us of our ability to reflect the light. How brightly are you radiating? You know, if it's just a sliver, what that means is that there's a lot more world shining, prohibiting. Hey, stand out and accept the full rays of the sun. Verse 20, then God said, and we're going to, by the way, read quite a chunk here. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind. Kind of like God's driving this point home according to its kind. And everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. God saw that this was all good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man and his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Just pause for a minute, just one quick observation. Note in those particular verses that on day six, God created them male and female, then said to them. 
What that means and what that sets the stage for is chapter two where the author gives us more information on what's actually happening here. So Adam and Eve and everything we'll see in in chapter two will have taken place here in this moment, though we're not giving the details, the details come later. Let's continue. And God said, see, see to who? He's speaking to Adam and Eve. I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all of the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you it shall be for food also to every beast of the earth to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life i have given i have given every green herb for food and it was so then god saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. All right, let's, let's just kind of unpack day five and day six. A lot of things happening, a lot of things in a very similar sense. Up until this point in time, God has been forming order out of the elements that he spoke into existence in verse one. However, something different occurs on the fifth day with then something even more bizarre taking place at the end of the sixth. On the fifth day, we're told, quote, God created. What did he create? Marine life for the sea and birds for the air, for the sky. Before, then on the sixth, continuing this process, making animals for the land. Then, after determining that all of these things were good, God created man in his image and likeness. First off, this word created, initially used on day five for fish and birds, but can also be applied to land animals, is the same word bara, which we originally found in chapter one, verse one, meaning, that while God up until this point has been forming order out of the elements he created, the elements he spoke into existence, here in day five, as it pertains to to fish and birds and land animals, God created again or spoke into existence something that didn't exist. It's the same word, which, which tells us that of the living things, the animal kingdom is unique from the plant kingdom. After creating plants, God spoke something new into existence that didn't exist beforehand. Okay, so follow me. Then verse 26 comes around, following the creation of the land animals, and we're told something strange happens, right? God said, he stops and he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, which is no doubt another evidence of this triunity of God. However, it would appear that in much the same way as the narrative presents a distinction between the animal and plant kingdoms, humanity now is further separated from the rest of the land animals. So everyone tracking with me, I know that's kind of heavy, but we're going to a point and that point's important. So there's a distinction between animals fish, birds, land animals, and vegetated life. And then there's a distinction from from the animal kingdom with humanity. So there's distinctions being made here through the vernacular as it's presented. The reality is that while all life contains the same physical building blocks, it's true 
that not all life is the same. In creating animals, God spoke something new into existence that hadn't previously existed within plant life, only to then do something even more unique concerning humanity. So what does this all tell us, and what is happening? Though plants have a body, there's a physical mass that tethers them to the the physical world. They lack a spirit. They, They lack desire, nature. They're totally bound by what they're made out of. Now, though animals have a body as well, animals possess a spirit, a a nature that controls desire, animal nature. However, animals lack a soul, consciousness, will. Amongst all of creation, It is only humanity, male and female, that has been created with all three. A body, similar to animals, similar to plants. We've been created with a spirit, something the plants don't have, but animals do. But we've also been created with a third component, a soul, the image and likeness of God, which presents us the ability to act consistently with or contrary to our fundamental human nature. Once again, presenting us in a triunity in the same way God is. Further evidence of these three distinctions you can find in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. In our outlaw church service, we actually did a more expanded defining of those three elements. Now notice, with our unique standing amongst creation, man, also possesses a greater responsibility. God commanded, look at it again, both Adam and Eve, to first be fruitful and multiply. I love that. Like that's an, that's an awesome command of God. Literally, it means that God told Adam and Eve, have babies and make many. I like it. I like what goes into it. Then we're told that man and female was commanded, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I also love this phrase. Like the idea to fill. In the Hebrew, it means to take in your hands. And then what? Subdue it or be satisfied by it. So, so make babies, make many, fill, multiply, and then take the earth in your hands and love it and enjoy it. Gain satisfaction from it. That's kind of contrary to what most pastors will present concerning the earth and its fallen state. Understand God's plan was for us to be in the world, to be of the world, to love the world, to enjoy the world, to be satisfied by the world, that the world was created to provide us something. I love that. Now, sin ruins it, but as God created it and designed it, there were things that were supposed to, to fill and to subdue. But then thirdly, note, have dominion, literally to rule or to, to, to have stewardship over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, to have dominion to take care of. Now, In conclusion, 
because we'll get more into the creation, the formation of man, woman, all of that next week. But I do want to take just a second here before we close to set the context. You know, our, our job here is twofold. Present the text, keep it with the context. So let's get to the context of creation, this creation narrative. By considering for just a minute what Moses was originally trying to communicate to the nation of Israel. Because I think the lesson here is so relevant for you and I. You might say it's so gospel. Aside from the nuance of intelligent design and the implication this has for the origin of life, which, on a side note, had no practical or specific relevance for the children of Israel. You didn't have to convince them that God created. They accepted that. There is one reality about Genesis chapter 1 that's inescapable. We can debate science and all of that, but this is a truth. It is only God's word that brings life and order out of chaos. That's the big point of Genesis 1. You see, Moses His point in presenting the creation account to the people of God is to hammer home this reality. For life to exist, things must function as an appropriate response to God's word. Which was a very relevant lesson for the children of Israel. Why? For they had just received at that point the greatest revelation of God, his written word and the law. So God speaks, and if we will hear it and respond, life and order result. This morning, if you will hear God speak, and then if you will act according to the things that he says, I promise, this is a law of the universe, that life and order will always result. And yet, anytime you refuse to listen, and instead depart from his word. What results? Not life and order, but your life reverting back to chaos and ultimate death. God's word creates things that don't even exist, but it's sin that decreates. James 1, verses 21 and 25, he says this, He says, therefore, let us lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. But I should also point out, where the power for life originates. While there is no doubt, you must hear, accept, and then act accordingly. Never forget, according to Genesis 1, the power for anything to exist doesn't rely on creation itself, but instead the word that initiates the process. That life came from where? The matter? No, the matter was lifeless and void. 
Where did life come from? The word, speaking into the matter. Life comes from the word. It originates in the word, which means if your life this morning is in chaos, if it's disorderly, if it's lifeless, it is only, friend, through the exposure and acceptance of God's word that you'll bring about order in life? No, 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 no. That God will bring about in you order and life. It's not what you do. It's God's grace and what he says. And if we'll rely on his word, that word transforms us. It is through grace, not your efforts, that God performs a work of creation. Let me read a few verses in closing here. In John 1, we're told, and John's gospel runs this parallel to Genesis, by the way. We'll get to it later. But John opens, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, placing this pronoun, he, with the Word. And all things were made through him, of what we just read. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, And the life that was the light of men, light in the darkness. And the word, we're told a few verses later, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, which Jesus was, we're told, full of grace and truth. And then note, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are what? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before what? Before even the beginning, that we should walk in them. The big point of Genesis 1 is that there is power in God's word. That book you hold in your hand, God's revelation to you, that we believe it's living, it's alive, that it's powerful, that as you're in it, it gets in you, that God speaks in you, and things change, and they transform. Not overnight, but there is a process. But Genesis 1 tells us that if we would respond, receive and respond, that God's word will create life and that more abundantly.